Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we feature Aubrey Leventhal and Duran Langberg from the exhibition A Place for Me, Figurative Painting Now at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston. The exhibition, which was curated by Ruth Erickson, spotlights painters who are particularly interested in depicting what is near and dear to them, including friends, lovers, family, studio spaces, and their homes. A Place for Me is at the ICA through September 5th. It's really good. Don't miss it. First, we'll hear from Aubrey Leventhal. She's a Philadelphia-based artist whose work explores the everyday in ways that engage with painting's history. She's shown her work in galleries in New York, L.A., Berlin, and Philadelphia. In addition to the ICA Boston exhibition, Leventhal's work is presently in Women of Now, Dialogues of Memory, Place, and Identity at the Green Family Art Foundation in Dallas. No, not me. It was curated by Claire Milliken and Bailey Summers and is on view through May 15th. I'll introduce Duran Langberg later on. First up, Aubrey Leventhal, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Ulysses Jenkins Without Your Interpretation. This major retrospective of the groundbreaking Los Angeles artist encompasses video works, performances, and archival ephemera that highlight the scope of Jenkins' 50-year practice. A pivotal influence on contemporary art since emerging in the late 1970s, Jenkins has constructed an other history that interrogates race and gender as they relate to ritual, history, and state power. Ulysses Jenkins is on view at the Hammer Museum February 6th through May 15th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. On view at the Getty Villa through August 8th, the dazzling new exhibition Persia, Ancient Iran and the Classical World, explores the artistic and cultural connections between ancient Iran, which was historically known as Persia, Greece, and Rome. Works on view include royal sculpture, spectacular luxury objects, religious images, and historical documents assembled from major museums in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. The exhibition also features an immersive film exploring the site and palaces of Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of Persia. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Coming to the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth on April 1st, Focus, Jamal Cyrus. Houston-based artist Jamal Cyrus examines forgotten, ignored, or fragmentary accounts of Black American culture. He raises clear questions about official history, what is overlooked and why, and the biases held by those writing and interpreting it. Cyrus uses a range of materials, including musical equipment, food, plant life, and used clothing, but transforms them into densely layered objects that refer to Southern material culture. For this exhibition, which is on view through June 26th, Cyrus made new sculptures, drawings, and assemblages that center on what the artist calls sonic territory, the oral and musical landscape of a region, in this case, the Trinity River Basin. The new work specifically examines the contributions of Fort Worthian multiredist and composer Julius Hemphill. Exploring the area's landscapes, natural and man-made, Cyrus's site-specific exhibition dives into the poetic layers, histories, and mythologies comprising this large area bifurcated and shaped by the Trinity River. Jamal Cyrus at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, April 1st through June 26th. And we're back. Aubrey Leventhal, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks so much. I want to start with a picture that's in the ICA Boston exhibition, and it's called Bar Stools. It features two people sitting at a table, which sounds pretty straightforward. And what I love about this picture, because I'm an art history nerd, is that 
it's thick with references to painting history. There's Picasso here and Matisse and Diebenkorn and Bernard. And I imagine we'll talk about all of those dudes as we go along. But the place I want to start is on the table and indeed on the tabletop. The tabletop is one of the oldest sites in painting, especially French painting. And you're obviously a huge fan of tabletops because you've been painting them for years. So why does the venerable and French tabletop still hold interest for you? Yeah, it's like my first love, the table. I think it acts in so many ways, but it it acts compositionally and it acts kind of narratively. So I think of it as this great device in terms of the shape. You've got usually the square rectangle and it plays with the planes of a composition so beautifully and the objects that sit on it, it can become quite poetic. It can become symbolic depending on what's there. And then it also, it has this quality of being so much emotion is in the table because it's where you gather. It's where things are left behind. I often like to paint things that don't really have a narrative. They don't, they don't go somewhere narratively, but they're about people and the table kind of holds that. It's like a stage in a way, an intimate domestic stage where we are at the periphery and then everything, you know, like the conversation kind of happens on the top of the table among the things. And I'm a huge lover of still life. So it kind of embeds a still life right there. And you like patterns too. And like Pierre Bernard, it's really easy to devote a certain section of the rectangle to a tabletop. And that gives a painter freedom to do other things in other places because everything on the tabletop is bolted to the tabletop. So you can get away with a pattern. Like in, in, in this painting, in bar stools, the, the tabletop is, is, is white and simple and is what holds our attention in the middle of the painting. But what pins the tabletop down is this kind of red floral pattern on the shirt or blouse or vest of one of the two women sitting at the table. Yeah, I think patterns do something really specific for me often where they anchor our eye and also, as you're saying, like can anchor other things. So I do often like when, you know, a table, which usually we think of as this solid thing, will start to float or the top will start to turn upwards. And so, yeah, that in that painting, that pattern kind of acts as a weight. And so the tension between those kind of focuses focuses us between the two women and the things on the table and kind of starts to ask what what's the relationship between all these things here. I think we'll talk about patterns and decorations. Gulp didn't quite mean it that way as we go along. But one of the things you do with tabletops occasionally, not always, that I can't think of other painters as having done is is you often paint glass tables, which would seem to undermine the whole idea of painting a tabletop for a painter and which I get a giant kick out of. I'm thinking of a painting like Visiting from 2022, which is um, full of kind of gustiny colors and then classic still life objects like books, a conch shell, a sculpture bust, vase of flowers on a, on a glass tabletop, which is just really makes that section of the picture like you keep checking to make sure it's glass. So painters have always tried to find little ways of tweaking the tabletop as a as, a, as an art historical site. Cezanne, for example, included a drawer under the tabletop and would sometimes even pull it open, right? 
So in a picture like visiting, what got you thinking, oh, I can play with glass as a tabletop? I think there's kind of two parts. Again, with the glass tabletop, I think it is beautiful that the paint is transparent as the glass tabletop is. So there's this kind of meeting of rea- like surface or reality of the paint being the same kind of material in a certain way, I guess. And so like if there's steam in a painting to make the paint appear to be sort of where you can, it's translucent, you can see through it, but it, it's not just a pure illusion, I guess, somehow to me. So, so I've always loved glass for that that transparency. And then in that painting, again, like the idea of needing something like formally in the composition is what brought the table in. At first I had painted myself kind of meditating in a chair because I often do that before I start working. I try to kind of center myself a little bit and the painting wasn't working. And, you know, my, my hand gets kind of itchy and I think like, okay, it needs something down at the bottom. And so my instinct is to make a line, but it didn't feel like it should be something that totally cuts, you know, comes on top. So the idea of, oh, a transparent tabletop, I can work with that, which takes the painting very much out of the original idea of this woman alone meditating in a chair. But that's exciting to me. So I follow that. I follow that line. And so the table was less of an initial thought than a necessity somehow. Except, you you know, in your work, it's always there as a move. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable, it, it, it's a not surprising. It's true. It has yeah. to kind of be a possibility. It could be strange, but it has, to, I, you know, that's a good parameter for me to work in. Oh, it needs something. Well, a table would kind of make sense. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there are two other strangenesses in that painting. You know, you have a Pierre Bernard-like dog whose nose is, and the dog is sitting at your, between your feet and his nose is barely under the tabletop. It's a super Bernardi move. I like the reference to Bernard. Yes, that's true. Um, I was thinking of Hockney kind of, because he loves the, the dachshunds, but yes. The way though your dog's nose yeah. <laughs> exists under the tabletop by like an inch, thus suggesting movement or implying movement. That's the part of it, other than the fact that a dog is at the very bottom of a picture which is also super Bernardi. And then the other thing in the painting that's in in visiting that is weird and audacious is that because the table top is glass, the still life objects, especially the orchid and the vase at the far right, appear to be floating in air, which is a super cheeky take on the still life. And I should add, you do that a lot. A lot of of times the still life objects in your paintings, even when they're not on glass, appear to, you know, they're on white tables. So that kind of gives the illusion of floating, not in a Cezannean way, but in a, in a Formica white tabletop kind of way. I think it just adds to a sense of attention when it's unexpected, like whether something that's light feels heavy, something that's heavy feels floating, or even like I was sort of trying to get at before when the paint kind of mimics reality. I think those kind of like heightened moments of painting echo the idea of a heightened sense of awareness of our surroundings that I'm always kind of interested in. All of this talk about tabletops has me remembering something that you've said in a couple of interviews I've read, and that is, for you, you think painting domesticity is kind of a radical painterly act, and the context in which you put it is, across the history of painting, you know, going back to the Dutch, at least, it's men who have painted women 
in domestic settings. And there is a certain place putting within that. And that for you as a woman painter, adding woman painted domestic scenes to the canon seems like a radicality. You know, when we think of women painters participating in canon construction, maybe we think of like Joan Mitchell and who I have on the brain because there was just a retrospective that went around. But, you know, doing doing something within a, a, a contemporary space that is within the contemporary, with the water at that contemporary moment, but that your thought was that in painting women in domestic spaces and refreshing a tradition going back 400 years that you were kind of offering a radical take on, on an old thing. And that's an idea I liked and, and like a lot and wonder how you came to think that a woman such as yourself painting domestic scenes was doing doing a radicalism. Yeah, I think so. I I recognize and love work by women that is raw and heroic the way Joan Mitchell's is. But I think she allows space for painters, contemporary like me, to come say, well, can I paint what I want to paint as a woman, which it happens to be like these domestic tender things, which I think someone like Bonard painting them or... You know, I often talk about like how Bonard or Alex Katz, we know their muses, Martha and Ada, but can I paint the things that women are, you know, it's expected. So it's going to be overlooked in a certain way. Oh, like a woman painting a still life, a woman painting the domestic. And it's sort of like, no, women had been, you know, pushed into these spaces. And so now, and now they can't, I think, I think there should be an ability to, Paint them, but I also have an awareness that in order for that to be seen, there has to be some tension built against the tenderness somehow. So I do think about what do I have to do that's different and should I have to? And and so those are all questions that I haven't answered. And I think that's why I keep going there. And yeah, I think just anyone's take on anything can give you a different perspective, but to have a woman's complicated reaction to you know it's a different it's a different response I think and like I was saying before Rachel Cusk in like the 90s wrote a memoir on motherhood and was surprised at the response she got from that because it felt so not what she was after she was saying radical things but in a way like the memoir as a form is very you know people just talk condescended about about it oh, a woman's, you know, complaining about all this, this and that. And so she went on to write these incredible autofiction books where she kind of uses the form in a, in a way that, that the reader really has to take what she's saying, the same content essentially, but has to kind of look at it in a, a new way. And so I'm very curious, how can you do that with painting? Let me pick up from that idea by raising a couple of pictures of that you've made of women in the bath, another one of those classic uh, French art historical subjects. I'm thinking of pictures like Morning Woman from 2021 or uh, Long Shower. Am I getting that right? Long Shower Lady from a year or two before that. And so what's, you know, naturally, given the art historical tradition, I think I look at these pictures and I first think of paintings by men. 
Hockney in the case of Long Shower Lady, Picasso in the case of Morning Woman, although there's some Matisse with the window behind the figure. And I guess in the case of Morning Woman, I also think of Christina Quarles. What did you think you could do with bathing scenes, indoor bathing scenes, that men weren't? I love those paintings. I love Bonnard's paintings. I love Degas' drawings. But I think there's an intimacy of those being about someone else that makes them a little bit more voyeuristic and removed. And I think for me, I'm interested in the psychological weight of being the person pictured or or feeling like I can at least relate to the woman pictured in a very, you know, in an intimate way that I don't think, I don't know that they were doing or attempting to do. Yeah, yours aren't as voyeuristic as, you know, say a Picasso. Yeah, someone said to me, like, Morning Woman's the least sexy nude I've ever seen. (laughs) And yeah, that's exactly right. I'm not interested in the sensual nature of that moment. It's more responding to a very sort of anxious emotional state and vulnerable state. While also including a lot of painterly jokes within the picture, it must be said. I mean, there's the blue of the sky uh, beyond the window and a different blue in the bathtub, which, you know, any painting fan is going to get a total kick out of. There's also the pattern uh, on, on the tile or the presumed tile on the bathroom floor in that picture, which we seem to be able to see through the bathtub, even though we know that's impossible. And that's all kind of nerdy painting fun too. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think that again comes to that like tension thing where if it's going to be that heavy of an emotional content, then there has to be something that pull, you know, that goes against that. And so for me, often it's it's that kind of like embedding those kind of witty or just like things that surprise me and excite me, and I'll leave them there. I, I could raise another 23 art historical things you do in your work that I love, but but this won't be a 23-hour podcast, so I'm going to just pick one more before moving on to something else. And that's a painting called Flower Bath from 2017. And it's a picture, um, it, it's another bathroom scene, only this time it is of a sink and the countertop around it in the foreground with kind of a very dramatic, very over-the-top floral wallpaper on the wall above the sink. And then after a moment, after a beat, the viewer notices that there is a mirror above the sink and a woman wearing a different floral pattern thing, garment top, um, is reflected in the mirror. You're, 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 you're having fun with mirrors, a la Matisse and Bernard, and you're having fun with patterns, a la Matisse and Bernard, and there you are in a bathroom again. And, and you do this kind of play with patterns and overlapping of patterns, often with mirrors, a lot. Why? What, what, what about that is fun, is works? works and is is obviously joyful for you i feel like i have answers but i also there are certain things in making paintings that i like to remain confused by and i just still get you know i don't actually find exact answers i resist knowing why but i do think there's something in shifts in scale and mirrors that again can heighten the idea of perspective so i think with that painting particularly when you look at the painting, you kind of are implicated into being the person looking in the mirror and the reflection comes back. And so there's a kind of question of what is it to enter someone else's interior world or what what is it when you look in a mirror? And also, 
you can never totally see yourself in three dimensions. I'm very interested in that, like being someone who looks at things carefully. I've never actually seen my own face. And so how do you get at a full identity that you think you know so well from living inside of it, but you can never actually see it from outside? It's a very strange thing. So so I like that play, and I like the way that instead of using shadows and perspective, just by shifting the scale of the wallpaper, so much is known. I love an idea of economy in telling us things that is actually very thought out, but at first seems so economical and so casual, I guess. Yeah, the the, the flowers on the wallpaper are, are really economically painted. There are two colors, and they seem to be repeating, but of course then as you look at each flower, they're wildly and massively different. And, and of course, they also read his eyes looking looking back at the viewer. It's not a creepy painting, but the longer you're in you look at it, the more uncomfortable it gets. You mentioned the person in the painting seeming to look back at the viewer. And in the very for, the very center, very foreground of the picture, there are three fingers or maybe four of a person's hand, just, just the fingernails, which also is so disorienting that I'm not able to stop saying the word um. This is also, you know, this picture, Flower Bath, is also a good transition to the next thing I wanted to talk about. And that is how you paint faces very often in your work. The most indistinct and fuzziest, blurriest painted thing on the entire surface of the picture is a face. Shower tile, uh, shower grid tile, clearly painted. Flowers, clearly painted. Olives on a tabletop or a bench, clearly painted. Face, blurry, indistinct, worked over, much harder to read. That's pretty consistent across all of your work and has been for a long time. What does that move do for you? I think that the expressions of the people feel so important, like just a slight shift in the line of the mouth or the heaviness of an eyelid can change the whole tone of a painting. So I think I'm often, I mean, my process is to paint things and then pull them away either with solvent on a cloth or with a razor if it's drier. And so I think there's often more revision there. You mean, and by there, you mean on faces? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The expression. And also, I think when it worked, it gives a kind of, it doesn't just stand still, even if you arrive at a deliberate decision about what the expression is. There's some history of the mark, and that gives a little bit of aliveness, I think, to that area and attention to that area where the viewer looks you know, we'll, we'll return to that. And yeah, I think that again, just speaks to the way it feels to be a person, you know, there's like maybe the largest feeling, but then there's so many other little things there. So, so it gives, I I think I, I work them until they reflect back something that I recognize in myself or in my, you know, someone else's face. And so I think it just, it takes much longer than what a perfect olive might. <laughs> it's, you know, another thing you do with faces is you often, very often, obscure them. Sometimes it's with a a window, I don't know, what do you call you know, a, a window that you lift up and down to open it. I don't know what you call that thing in the middle. But sometimes, you know, that, that exists in a painting like in Nightstand 5 from 2021. 
across the person's face. You often, very often, have hands on or obscuring part of faces and heads. And then sometimes you hide, um, as an egg breakfast, which is in the ICA Boston show, you use an oversized object to to hide someone behind. I think in that case, it's like a gallon milk jug, painted painted orange, so milk that's gone really bad. <laughs> so this is all a long way of saying that painting faces and then obscuring them is also a, a, a big Leventhal move. Why obscure them? Often it's adding to positioning where the viewer is. And I like, I like when space kind of feels like it sits on top of itself. So I think something like the window or the orange douche jug, you have to look, there's something behind, behind, behind. And that's like really seeing, I don't know, there's like steps to looking at a painting that's like that, that, that mimic seeing in reality. So there's a Bonard painting, I have to get the name of it, but it's like this white room and there's at the bottom, this disguised woman's back, it's in white. And so you look at the painting and you just see the white. And it's very deliberate where you move across horizontally in the painting. And then in your second view, you see the woman appear. And it's kind of like when you actually walk into a room and don't notice someone's there and then they pop up, you know, and it's, I'm very interested in how a still image like the painting can reveal itself. And so I think there's something to having these layers of foreground, middle ground, background that actually compress that does that. And again, I think sometimes like with egg breakfast or the one in the ICA where it's the the red bed where there's the bright lamp in front of the woman's face that's at the top left. Yes, of slowing down looking, but also kind of cutting against any melodrama. Like there's a big feeling there, but something about the banality of a light bulb being on. We both recognize that feeling of being in bed, staring at a light. And also as the viewer of the painting, looking at the woman, thinking what's going on there. And then it's like, oh yeah, you know, it brings you back to the mundane in a way that for me mimics reality also. At the beginning of when we started talking about faces, you talked about how you build them often by removal, whether it's by using solvent on a painting rag or a razor blade. And I was glad you brought that up because I wanted to talk about the surfaces of your pictures. So instead of kind of being rich and lush and thunderous in their oily painterliness, you're using what I think are, are often heavily thinned paints and your palette tends toward colors that are pretty washed out. And, and I had in my notes, and, and, and later, you know, I'm, this is not correct, but, but the surface of your pictures often feels like it's, it's like they're distemper rather than, than oils or acrylics. They're oils, I should add. How did you come to value, or what about that kind of atypical, heavily worked, almost aged surface, aged looking surface, do you value? I think there's something innate in it. It's just, I gravitate toward that in reality, not like to grab the shiniest thing, but to the strangest little thing. And I think there's something about the paint quality not being what we're taught in school, the meaty with the varnish and linseed. I eventually, you know, I started a third, a third, a third, like you get taught. And then eventually I just not adding things. And so now I just use the, I use that, what's that brand? Eco, it's a natural solvent. And I love it because it, yeah, it, it, it erases in a way, like it, 
to see things become ghost-like for me feels really like it, again, matches with the content in a way, like the idea of remembering something. So that does that for me. And I often push myself to start with brighter colors. So you'll see some of the paintings, a bright kind of yellow or recently I, I find red so difficult to work with. So I've tried red will remain, but, but then I, I push it back with these washes. So often if the painting becomes too disjointed, I'll put a wash over it and that will reunite what I'm trying to do and give it that kind of veil of, you know, more of a subdued gray or neutral, I think. And that, that often just feels so right to me to have those grounding neutrals and let little bright moments sing. Kind of funny you mentioned reds. I had in my notes that there are, there are a number of paintings you've made where it feels like you're trying to make yourself use reds and figure out how to use reds. Pictures like Alex and I sink, where you have watermelons and cherries floating on a sweater, if you will, feels, and everything else in the painting is pretty much gray or black, feels like you're figuring out how much red you can get away with. And there's, there's another picture that I don't have the title of in front of me, I'm afraid, but we'll get it, we'll get it for the show page, where you have a couple of shopping bags, like a couple of plastic shopping bags in the foreground of the picture, and I can't really remember what's in the background, but the shopping bags are kind of opaque, the way plastic shopping bags are, and like the name of the grocery store is there in red, and it feels like you're seeing how much opaque translucence while still using red you can get away with. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, red is, I think, so hard, and a lot of painters will disagree with me and can use red beautifully, but I think, to me, red feels so emotionally and symbolically used and it always means you know intense emotion love and rage and I'm interested in a lot of feeling but it's much less action feelings it's subtle and so I think I often am like how you know I need to find my way to use red and so I I think it's a challenge I keep returning to because I find it interesting but it's definitely difficult. We've talked a good bit about men and, and dude painters, and I think with good reason. But I wanted to also raise a picture that I suspect comes from a mindful engagement with a woman artist. That painting was in your Berlin show earlier this year, this year being 2022, called Window Shopper. And it's a picture that, for me, seems torn from Imogen Cunningham, who made uh, many photographs of women, often herself, reflected in storefront windows as a way of referencing both desire for material objects, but also places that were, and at the time Cunningham was making the pictures, owned by and controlled by men, and how she felt this conflict between place that was targeted at her, but not of her. And so there are a number of pictures, I mean, you know, in Window Shopper, you're you're showing a woman's reflection in a window. In, in some other pictures, you kind of play with a similar idea. There's a painting I don't remember the title of, of a woman looking in a fridge at a jug of milk. And there's a, an empty wine bottle in front of her that, that does the same kind of reflection work. Is there something in that? Is that, you know, are, are you sometimes looking for women whose work you can engage, even if they're photographers? Oh, yeah. I was not, not at all thinking about that work but the idea you raise of a space being both to like seduce 
a woman shopper and also something that women want to shed. I mean, that's a very rich, complicated space. There was a great essay by Rebecca Liu recently on that. And yeah, I think those feelings where joy and disdain meet, you know, that's a really rich space. And the reflection for me feels it's like another it's not a domestic space I'm, I've started being very interested in spaces that aren't quite in the home so but they feel somewhat intimate so I think window shopping living here in South Philly I've been thinking a lot about like where our gaze goes every day um, in every day in terms of contemporary photographers I love Laura Latinsky which is different much different and then I love I mean I spend most of my time looking at women painters I would say and we were just talking about Florian Stettheimer. I mean, those are such joyous and also oh, self-aware and dark shopping paintings. The sale, you know that one sample sale. I love that painting of hers. So yeah, I think that's where the work may head next into these other spaces. <laughs> the last thing I want to raise is kind of a maybe a weird one. Your pictures are full of crossed legs, legs folding over other legs, legs crossing with uh, a shoe in the air and maybe the sole of the the foot jammed up against the picture picture plane as close to the viewer as you can get it, kind of oversized. Legs crossed underneath the tabletop, as we were talking about before. So many legs used to flatten space and change perspective in the viewer's idea of depth and flatness paintings in which you are like using legs but only to kind of fuck with them and to me that just screams Diebenkorn that's a that's a real Diebenkorn move why do you use legs with such Gumby-like difference in joy (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love that and I never sort of explicitly thought about that I do that yeah I guess what you're saying feels so right. It's something to do with, they're a great formal thing. They're like, they move in space so far the way that other parts of the body are stuck together. The legs can kind of be in front or curled up or yeah, you create a real sense of foreshortening, I guess. And I think again, that probably relates to, and it's a, great device to meet the content so for example like in young therapist I'm thinking of I have it's like an orange painting from I guess it's about 2018 and there's legs coming in from the bottom of the painting that would presumably be the viewer or mine the, you know and then there's like the very anxious folded legs and I, I don't know they add feeling to the pose so much I think that's a weird that's a really weird painting there's a very Matisse house plant in the background of that painting that is about to kill the woman sitting in the chair <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah so I think the legs are as anxious as the plant as the color I don't know they're just another fun way I think that they do they feel like the shape in itself contains a sense of humor often Aubrey Leventhal thanks so much Thank you. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, 
is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston will host the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery Tour of Portraits of President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama by artists Kahinda Wiley and Amy Sherald. The exhibition contemplates how portraiture has given visual form to ideas of power, identity, status, and legacy throughout history. Experience the power and beauty of these celebrated works, now on view. For tickets and info, visit mfah.org tickets. Welcome back. Next up, Duran Langberg. He's a New York-based artist who's often large-scale paintings explore intimacy, color, and touch. Langberg has been included in group shows at the RISD Museum, the Frick Madison, and the Louisiana State University Museum, the LSU Museum. Langberg's work is in the collection of PAFA in Philadelphia and the RISD Museum. Deron Langberg, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. The loudest thing about your work, the most obviously obvious thing about your paintings is color, color, color. Loud, booming, unapologetic, thunderous color. So, of course, we have to start there. And I want to try to understand a bit about what motivates your use of color. So let's turn the clock back to 2012, 2013-ish. You've just finished your MFA, and you're making chromatically intense pictures such as Doorway from 2012, which is a study in blues, or an untitled work the next year, which suggests a bed and a headboard or window, which is a study in reds. What do you remember thinking about color and how you wanted to use it as you were kind of exiting grad school? With color, I I really don't consider myself like a natural colorist. And it's been a huge learning process for me and my own work. And I still think I'm I'm learning a lot about how I want to use color and also just the possibilities of what color does. And when I was in grad school, really, I kind of came to Yale with that goal in mind, because when I was an undergrad at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, you know, I worked a lot from observation. It was a very traditional program. And a lot of the colors I was using were very naturalistic and very kind of like what I saw. And this, and the idea of color was very, very not structural in, in the way that I kind of used that at least. And most of the work that I actually did in my junior and senior year were black and white. I like drew or, or used black and white acrylic. So kind of 
Coming to Yale, that was really my, my goal. And also to transition from using acrylic back to using oil, which was kind of the medium that I've used all my life kind of prior to just a few years in undergrad. So I think those works were really just me trying to figure out what color does. And a lot of my paintings only had like a few pigments in them. Like I would have studio visits with friends and they were like, oh, like maybe you make this pink. And I was like, what are you talking about? There's only three pigments I can use in this painting. Like it was just very structured and the palette was very limited. And I think my process is really has been, you know, in the last decade since I graduated from grad school is to gain more and more freedom and just be able to make choices that benefit the painting without so much of a structure around color. Concurrently, your figures back back then, 10 years ago, were much more shadowy, much more two-dimensional, were less modeled with paint into three dimensions. We see bodily forms, but they're, I don't know, they're not quite blurry, but they're shapes rather than distinct three-dimensional things. You know, why, why was your initial address of the figure a lot flatter back then than it will become? So I think that... I started this kind of working with a sexual subject matter or a queer subject matter or even like a personal subject matter when I was a junior at PAFA. And these were all very small graphite drawings from video still. So I would like film me and a friend hooking up and then would draw from that. And that actually did have a lot of rendering in terms of like describing forms and in, in, in volumes. And I think I almost became a little self-conscious of how romantic that is or how like you know like kind of like relying on these tools that I've learned that are more traditional and I kind of abandoned that way of working thinking it's retrograde so the work that I made after that was really a lot more collage based and a lot flatter and I think it actually taught me a lot about how to construct a picture how to think about composition how to think about space kind of decentralizing maybe the impact or the meaning of that you know rendering could give in terms of information about like tenderness and touch and attention and, and all these and all these things that are, are so important to me now. So I think that that was really also kind of a, a long process that I had to go through in terms of like understanding what using these more traditional tool, tools mean to me and also what they can give the work and then figure out how to use them in a way that still felt, you know, fresh and contemporary, like almost finding my own way through the language of painting or the history of painting without being like so timid about it. So I think the flatness was really kind of coming as just like a security. And I think as I gained confidence as a painter and gained confidence in the meaning of the tools that I'm using, it's like, no, there is a reason, there is a function for these, for this particular painting language. And I think I kind of allowed myself to, to indulge more in it. I became better at it. Yeah, and the the importance of physical touch grows in the pictures as the years go on, which probably also suggests kind of a certain settling into how to use the medium, paint being such a touchy medium. That, that I, I don't know. Do you buy that? Do you think that? Do you think that you you become more comfortable painting intimate physical touch as the years go on? Yeah, definitely. I think that also just my level of awareness. And being able to capitalize on moments that I think happen for every painter and every painting, but just people choose to cover them up. And I think for me and my process, so much of the painting feels super, you know, like fresh or touched for the first time kind of 
attitude because I really, really want to preserve that encounter with the surface and that being a source of meaning to the work. And even if that you know, that that obviously like makes the stakes quite high in terms of the painting that like every touch has to supposedly be perfect, but not really, because I feel like what really is meaningful, you know, to, to work to use maybe a charge word, like the authenticity of the encounter with the surface is more important than what it actually looks like. And I think that that's what ends up being resonant is just kind of the directness of the touch and the straightforwardness. And that definitely is something that developed over time. And I think I'm, I'm definitely emphasizing that and, uh, or trying to emphasize that in my recent work. Well, let's zip ahead to that recent work and to work at the ICA Boston. The paintings are just as chromatically bright as the pictures you were making five or six years ago, but now they're much more varied. Skin, for example, is built from not just a red, but many, many, many reds. And the areas around figures are built from many, many colors, reds and yellows and blues and so on. Are you mindful of there having been a process that brought more complication and layer and variety to your use of color? I, I mean, I definitely see it, you know, when I'm looking at, at my work over time. And I think it's it's really a process of just becoming more confident as a painter and being able to do more. I think painting is definitely like a juggling of so many different things at once the more I can kind of like process these choices as muscle memory, the more freedom I have within the painting to just kind of be flexible and make choices that are beneficial to the feeling or the moment that I want to capture. So it's definitely something that shifted over time. I think it's just a function, again, of, of being just having a little bit more control over these very chaotic elements of like paint and color. Let's pick one particular painting that's up at the ICA and use it as a way of kind of talking about your interest in art history, why you use certain colors, and what you are kind of pointedly one eyebrow up adding to art history. And so the picture I want to use for that is is called Bather. It's from last year, 2021. It is a spectacular, intense, high color, high key, and strikingly direct address of, of Pierre Bernard, specifically the Bernards of his wife, Marta, in a bathtub. Anybody who loves Bernard as much as you do knows that Marta was dead <laughs> and was being frozen at a certain age in those pictures. And you're very much painting someone who is alive. I guess maybe maybe using Bather, why, why did you want to address those Bernards? Well, I feel like Bernard, to me, thinking about color is just one of the greatest masters. And I think that what he's able to do, which is so incredibly difficult, is to create a world where we have a vivid sense of what it is he's describing and it connects to our bodily experiences of the world, of light, of color, of touch, of atmosphere, of time of day, like all these things exist so specifically within his work, but none of the colors that he uses are actually descriptive of those experiences. So to me, Bonard always kind of like loom large in terms of like just the mastery of, of color and what color can offer to a painting. So I feel like, you know, color being, as we've talked about, such a big part of my thought process in terms of my work, I, I really wanted to bring that conversation or that slice of meaning and art history to the surface and kind of like really directly reference it. And I wasn't thinking 
too specifically about, you know, like when those paintings were made or kind of like the, you know, the narrative, the autobiographical narrative of Bernard and Marta, what was going on at the time with Marta and like her, also her illness, like all those things that are kind of related to, you know, the backstory of these pieces. It's more about them being like iconic paintings in the history of painting and kind of what they, the discussion that they represented about intimacy and domesticity and kind of these internal spaces that are just so meaningful. And that related in my mind really to the time that I was in when I was making that painting, which was early pandemic. And the home was really the the only sphere of meaning available and kind of finding a whole world emotionally within it was something that maybe only in retrospect, I kind of realized that that painting was about. So I think in wanting, you know, to paint the bathroom in my apartment, paint someone really close to me, I wanted that painting to feel very inward facing. And that the color is both, you know, the heat of being in, you know, of, of taking a bath, for example, and that physical sensation that's very all-encompassing. And I wanted the color to represent kind of that dissolve of boundaries between one's body and the water and the environment and the, you know, the atmosphere, but also for it to feel kind of very concentrated and, and intense at the same time. So tell me more about that. Are you beyond this painting using color as a marker or representation of physical feeling and intensity, or is that only here in this painting? No, absolutely. And I, I, think that that's something that's so central to my thinking just in the everyday of the studio is both having color describe a physical sensation that we have. For example, there was a painting that I made in my first solo show at 1969 Gallery called Morning One, and it was a kind of grayed out rainbow palette. And that was really the first time that I was thinking about these moments when you just open your eyes and everything kind of seems to blend together and everything is every color. So that's kind of a concrete example of a color palette that represents or a color that could connect to a physical experience. But also what I want the color to do is to kind of represent an internal experience. So the viewer kind of gets an insight both into the reality of the moment that I'm describing, kind of the the external qualities of it phenomenologically, but also the emotional internal qualities of maybe the figure depicted or or my connection to the person I'm painting. The kind of this emotional reality and visual reality are kind of coming together in in the color. That's, I think, a big part of my goal in, in, in using chromatic evocative palettes. Bather features a male figure in a bathtub. You don't exclusively paint men, but you paint lots of men, either as portraits or in intimate moments, either alone or with each other. Do you think of yourself as consciously adding men and queerness to a painting tradition, you know, that goes back 700 years and mostly has that as a sublimated thing, if at all? Or are you just painting from life? I feel like I'm actually just doing what painting has done for so long and because my life is the way that it is then I would paint it would would make sense for me to paint like a man in a bathtub as opposed to a woman because that's just like what surrounds me 
And also painting, I feel like, is such a barometer for one's feelings about things and connection to things. And I think that just it, with at least in my own work, if I'm not connected to the person I'm painting or if I don't have an experience in mind that I want to tap into, there's really no painting to be made. And the few times, you know, that I've done that, it just it just comes out so empty. So I think that for me, kind of like the everyday reality of my work that is obviously very much connected to my queerness is is really the starting point. There wouldn't be paintings without without it for me to make. And I also think that what kind of drives my physical process of painting is being able to tap into, again, like that specificity. And I feel like desire, for example, is such a guide for that specificity. Like if you're, if I'm like super into whatever I'm painting, like if I'm really super into my subject, then there's, I can tap into all the different tiny reasons that motivate me and kind of make that present in in a painting. I, it's funny, I recently heard this interview between Kelly Baum, who's, who was a curator at the Met, who curated the Alice Neal show, and Hilton Alice, who curated a, several Alice Neal shows at David Sprinter. And Hilton Alice talks about how Alice Neal's desire authored so much of her choices within her paintings of men. And you can really feel her connection to the to the subject and giving form to these desires. And that's what makes them so impactful, whether you share that desire or not. And I feel like that's such a strength of painting that painting is able to speak to our bodies in a way that transcends personal experience or kind of like is able to kind of translate personal experience. That's really interesting for a lot of reasons. One, one of them is that when I look at your work and identify influences, Bernard being a good example, they tend to be painters painting heterosexuality, whether it's in the domestic environment or in the bedroom or wherever. And maybe I see less or fewer queer artists from the last hundred years of art history pushing forward in the work. And so one work I've found myself thinking a lot about as I've looked through your pictures is Paul Cadmus's 1931 painting of Jared French, which I think is titled Jerry, and it's, in, it's at the Toledo Museum of Art. And it's very controlled. It's, it's, it's a very erotic, intimate picture, conceptually, pictorially, all the rest, but it's very controlled. It's very careful. It's very held in check. Everything the painter is doing is, 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 is held to a T, whereas your work is much more expressive and free and loose. And so I think this is all a long way of asking, do you have queer painting heroes from the 30s, 40s, later, or is your way of engaging, expressing, and presenting queerness in your work so different from what was possible a hundred years ago that that you don't find as much in it? I feel like learning about Felix Gonzalez Torres changed my entire perception about art making and painting. Thinking about, like you're saying, like Jared French and Paul Cadmus and kind of that pajama crew of the 40s, David Hockney. I think about Hockney in the context of your work all the time. Yeah, Hockney is like a huge, you know, looming figure for me. Wolfgang Tellman as well, in terms of thinking about 
you know, processing his own desire into these like remarkable images. So I think that there's definitely a lot of queer artists that influence my work in terms of strategy, in terms of just giving me allowance to explore the subjects that I'm exploring, like, you know, being really young and kind of like early teens and, and discovering Hockney and realizing, wow, like he's just so, he lives in painting. He lives in the history of painting and he's so free and he borrows from wherever he wants to borrow from and he paints whatever he wants to paint, whether it's like a still life, the pyramids, <laughs> his partner sleeping. And I think that level of freedom was really revolutionary for me growing up. And I think also there's, you know, so many historical examples, like thinking about someone like Michelangelo, thinking about someone like Martinson Hartley, how does their desire kind of come into their work in, in a time where, you know, the idea of being queer was not even, not that it wasn't even possible, it didn't even exist, you know what I mean? And, you know, thinking about people like Bronzino and kind of, again, like how just gay these figures feel, like so clearly, and how could that happen in like 15th century Florence? And, and why, you know, hundreds of years later, I still feel so seen <laughs> by that work is, is quite remarkable. So I do think that I, I definitely have a lot of queer heroes, but I think you're right that a lot of the, maybe aside from Hockney, which I've kind of quoted directly a, a bunch of times, I think mostly, you know, people like Monk, people like Chile, people like Bonnard are kind of maybe formally something that I've emphasized or like reference to more directly. And of course, you know, now that you mention it, that that Cadmus Jerry I mentioned a moment ago, you know, half of that pose is borrowed from from Michelangelo. It's not like that hasn't been explored both by scholars and by painters. No, another thing that also I think about is that since forever, I think queer people had to find themselves within, like find rep representations that resonate with them within straight culture. So I think that, that the history of painting, although having many homosexuals in it, like you were saying before, there wasn't as kind of like direct representation of queer experiences. So I think that, and you can see that in popular culture as well, like, you know, the celebrities that queer people admire, um, a lot of them are straight. So I think that it's, it's just a reality of living in, in a straight world that not only prioritizes a straight experience, but, you know, demands it. That kind of limits the amount of options that one has as, as a painter. And, and, and we, and, you know, and so many of us end up identifying kind of beyond the representations that are strictly of us. But I also think that that's something that inspires me to make work that could connect to other people that don't have a queer experience. You know what I mean? Like that makes me also think about just like how incredible and deep painting is as a tool to connect us as people. So I think that it's kind of like, it is by a certain kind of like default of what exists, but also I think it's something that is unique to, to painting that I am able to access, you know, like paintings of Aang, of women that he painted them in, in the most eroticized way for him and still, and still gain so much meaning from it. One of the things I had, you know, to that line of thought, one of the things I had in my notes, which wasn't exactly a question, but it was just in my notes, was that quite often there's more Cecily Brown in your work than there is David Hockney. The kind of the frenzied expressive brushwork and layering of colors on top of each other in a Cecily Brown painting sometimes seems closer to your way of using paint 
than than Hockney's often flatter way of using paint. Totally. And I mean, Cecily is an incredible, incredible painter. And she's very much kind of like a child of our history. Yes. Well, I mean, like sort of literally, right? <laughs> yeah, literally a child of our history, but also in her work. So many of them are kind of like rethinkings of um, historical painting. And I think that that language, that kind of like loose language, you know, is something that I've fetishized in people, you know, from Velasquez to Sargent or, you know, there's just so many examples. And she, you know, she was such a, is such a important, important figure. And, you know, especially high school, early college, like thinking about what painting is, you know, it was her, it was Lisa Yuskovich, it was Dana Schutz, like just these incredible painters. So definitely, I haven't thought about her as a direct influence, but I told, but yeah, totally. The last painting I want to raise is the big diptych that's at the ICA that is in PAFA's collection. It's called Daniel Reading, and it's from 2019. So we haven't talked about composition or construction much, and and so maybe this is the way to do it. It's pretty fascinating the way the right-hand side of this painting, the far right-hand side of this painting, is kind of a fauve expressionism. Fauve in that the forms are entirely defined by color and really nothing else. Expressionistic in that super handsy monochromatic bursts in the lower right. Then as we get more toward the center of the diptych and a figure sitting on, on, on like a rug, the painting gets very detailed. And then as we move, continue moving right to left across the canvases, in the upper left, we're back to kind of brushy unreadability. So, so from brushy unreadability and a, and a kind of fauve expressionism to like a super specific in hyper focus or in significant focus in the middle and then, and then kind of passing out of vision again in the upper left. I guess what I'm asking is, are you composing a, a diptych like that to be read in a series of ways? Because that's kind of how it, it, it feels. Vision clear in the middle brushier and less in focus on the edges it was really the the first time that i've made a painting that big and i felt like i kind of needed a very solid structure to start me off and that was the rug this is like my my partner's family and and we drove up there and i painted each of like his brother and his family kind of from observation and you know drove down with those paintings and took them to studio and kind of combined with photographs constructed this composition that really kind of centers around this this massive textured rug and that was the very first thing that I made in the painting it was kind of these like washes of color and then I just kind of wanted this anchor in the middle that's going to be like super heavy and graphic and then structured everything around it and I think that it was such a it was such a formal like formally unknown a journey with this painting that I think that I was really kind of throwing everything I had on it and trying to keep it like, like you're saying, like the right side, like preserve the vibrancy and freshness and, and openness, and then kind of like delve deeper into more information and rendering. And I was kind of making it really trying to tie together this giant canvas. And I feel like now actually, like in more recent work, there were double paneled, like in my show that I did with Victoria Miro, the paintings of my brothers or the landscape painting that I did. I feel like I allow, I allow myself a lot more freedom. Like I don't feel like I need to say everything that there possibly could be said in one painting and like as many different ways of making. 
so they're a little bit more focused and they're I think in the range of visual languages so I really this was kind of like this my first attempt and I was really trying to kind of really my, my main concern was making was making it work <laughs> I totally get that because I think the closer we get to the present in your practice, there's a quieting in the sense that, you know, you're happy to do a couple things really well rather than 18 things at once. I think that's true of like some of the pictures of the flowers, you know, which you, which, you know, like hibiscus from a couple of years ago or the, the picture with irises. I don't know the title or I don't have the title in front of me. Probably, or maybe lilies, I, lilies and irises. You know, you're just, you're, you're, you're happy to do the thing that's in front of you instead of having to show all of the things you can do at once. And that's, I, I totally agree. And I, and I definitely think that's a confidence thing as well that like, and I feel like now the flower paintings actually I'm able to do them in one session, like just observationally. Whereas before I would take them back to the studio and keep working on them, which I still do with a lot of the portraits. So I feel like even, even that process, like I just made this 50 by 60 painting that was also done from observation and like, I would say like 80% of it was done just in that sitting. So I think in terms of like goals as a painter, it's like, I want to be able to really kind of be more succinct with how I say things and have the confidence to, to not make up for it in different ways. It's like, if the canvas is 80% white, but it says all it needs to say, then that's what it's going to be. And that's enough. You know what I mean? This idea of like, I'm enough, the, the subject is enough, the process is enough. Like, I don't need to add more to it. It's something that is definitely, I'm, I'm working towards in my studio. I lied. One more thing. You paint beds a lot, you know, often pairs of figures on beds, but sometimes just one figure on a bed. And we were talking about Pierre Bernard earlier. And to me, Pierre Bernard's paintings of beds are pretty unique and distinct, but your paintings of beds seem to walk right up to Bernard's and often borrow from from them, both as kind of a stage, using, you know, how, how Bernard offered beds as a stage, to how he managed to put so much color in white sheets. So long, long story short, thinking of a picture like Sleeping One from 2020, were you interested in Bernard's? Are you interested in Bernard's beds? Well, with that one in particular, I wasn't quite thinking about about those Bernard paintings. But I think that like, the like with that painting the sleeping painting i was really trying to think about how a rainbow palette could operate within a painting and, I, and that's something that bernard does all the time really successfully We're just using every color and every painting which is is quite mind-blowing but in that painting in particular also you know thinking about the rainbow as a queer marker as well and this phenomenological natural experience that is just something we can all access first of all you know what I mean it's something that everyone has experienced so it's it's a shared experience and also it's a transcendent one like, like I feel like for for me at least looking at the rainbow there's something that feels otherworldly and I'm kind of like not preoccupied with you know the ins and outs of my everyday and I just kind of focus on this beauty there's kind of a transporting element to it connects me to the world it connects me to you know, the people around me. And I wanted to bring that kind of rarefied connectedness that happens with something like a rainbow into a relationship scene. Thinking about, you know, my partner sleeping, like there's a love that was deeply felt that I wanted to, to capture and kind of like the color parallel of, of that love maybe. It kind of made sense to me to 
to use to use the rainbow to talk, talk about it. And I've kind of continued to use that almost as, as kind of a marker of that in my work. Yeah, and you know, what's one of the interesting things about the way that works on a surface, and, and, and this is in really good Bernard's too, is that even when everything in a picture is holding still, I mean, like a pillow is an, in, in, is an inanimate object. It's not independently, you know, moving. <laughs> even when everything in a picture is holding still, using the rainbow the way you do and adding and finding colors within, say, white sheets, animates a picture even as everything in the picture is holding still. You get this tension between it seeming like everything's in motion and then you look closely and everything's holding still. And then, and that's really Bernardian. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I want and is a challenge because I feel like actually now I'm working on this series. I've made like four of these like couple paintings now and they're all on beds. And yeah, yeah mostly, you know, the sheets are kind of like uneventful <laughs> and the thought of like, okay, like, how do I introduce difference? Like, how do I approach this, you know, vast expanse of just like crumpled fabric and make it into something exciting? And I think in each one, it was definitely like something I was, I was grappling with. And I think in general, like my ideas about like the, the decision-making about the color of different things, I think has to do with, there's a certain kind of starting point. It could even be, you know, as small as like, oh, like, my friend that I'm painting has these like startling, you know, blue eyes. And I want to be able to say that, like to say something so small, like the color of someone's eyes, like in a painting. So I feel like the blue has to play such a big role in just the color world of the painting where when it does get to their eyes, it feels connected to, it feels both a point of information that somehow is like important or unique or whatever, and also formally connected to the other elements of the painting. So I think a lot of color decisions are kind of like this balancing of local color information that I want to include, whether it's like, again, like a, a rainbow palette or these figures are embracing and I want within their embrace to use very warm colors. And I want it to be distinct from the rest of the painting. So the rest of the painting is going to be maybe like a bluish gray or something like kind of structuring color based on what it is that I want to highlight. And the sheets just become, you know, a perfect vehicle for that because they can be any color. They can have a pattern. They cannot have a pattern like they can. I can have ultimate freedom with those aspects. And they, you know, don't tend to be in a representational at all, but just kind of like serving that they're an excuse to just like experiment and have fun because they're so flexible. Mm, I love the conceptual intentionality in that. That's a lot of fun. Duran Langberg, thanks so much. Thank you. It was so wonderful to chat. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.